Hello, welcome to episode 25 of the Irish Left Archive podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Charles Tuba to discuss Sean Swan's book, Official Irish Republicanism, 1962-1972, and the issues it raises around changing views of republicanism and the period leading to and following the Republican split in 1969. The book was published in 2007, and listeners who haven't read it will find a chapter available for free on the Kane website, which is linked in the episode notes. Before turning to the discussion of the book, we asked Charles about his own political background in trade unionism and the industrial workers of the world in the United States, and his interest in Irish Republican history. This is one of a series of episodes we hope to do centred on particular books, to discuss key issues in the history of the Irish left and republicanism. For people who want to delve in further, there are numerous documents in the Irish left archive from the period. Thanks as always to everyone who's been listening to and subscribing to the podcast. You'll find the Irish left archive at leftarchive.ie. If you want to get in touch, you can contact us via the website or email us at contact at leftarchive.ie. Thanks to Charles for joining us in this episode and thank you for listening. Thanks very much for coming on. Maybe to start, you can give us a bit of background of your own political uh, engagement. No, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Look forward to being here today. Um, my first real political engagement, uh, 20 years now. But so I grew up in Denver, Colorado, uh, came from uh, Eastern European background, uh, Volga Deutsch and Modiar, Hungarian, respectively. Uh, and then basically rednecks from Western Kansas. So it was a, a, a typical, I man, just American football and, and minor league baseball teams and that. We didn't have anything big back in the day. Mm. So came up fairly conservative, hunting, fishing, camping, all that good stuff. And and as one might expect uh, from people from Eastern Europe, even uh, farm laborers, it was not uh, kind of socialism was definitely a, a four-letter word and, and very much associated with the, the kind of the Soviet experience, the lived Soviet experience. I mean, that's something that, I mean, reality is obviously Soviets killed members of my family, stealing pigs from them, quite frankly. So, so it was very, I was always politically aware, but tended to come from a, the opposite side of the political spectrum. And then uh, continued on in my teenage years like that. And that was fine until obviously you have the, the lived experience of capitalism. Uh, my parents worked for the phone company. Most of my family worked for the phone company, quite frankly, and I remember my dad had worked for the phone for 24 years and he got laid off after a stroke mm. as part of a 5,000 worker layoff for a tax cut. And then the CEO turned around and he hired 5,000 people right back. We hired him right off the street, right? So he could pay him less. He didn't have to, to do that. And the, the, nature of that was was eye-opening right because you you obviously we experienced and we saw how someone's life could be destroyed uh, more or less by that act and it was it was purely there was it had nothing to do with the level of work or anything like that it was just it was about bookkeeping right he could get rid of five thousand who had 24 years accrued and then bring new people in off the street for less money and that was a, a real eye-opener and about that same time I'd uh, I'd read a lot of George Orwell. Obviously, eighty-four and Animal Farm was starting points as as any good anti-communist would, right? <laughs> yeah. But but I've got kind of a I have a very strong nerdy streak, so I'll like I'll fixate on something and I'll read everything that I can find on it. So I I read Orwell's entire catalog, uh, and his novels, his time in India, his short stories. But but the most influential for me was obviously I read Amish Catalonia and then obviously the the anarchist perspective and all that. And that happened at a time when I was, for lack of a better term, disgruntled with the capitalist system. Mm. And it opened my eyes to a non 
socialist, Soviet, however you want to articulate it, um, version of anti-capitalist. And so that really started me down my road. And and when I started, it was it was fairly. I mean, you know, like the punk rock anarchist scene was really where it was. Um, but then from there, still was a blue collar guy. I worked on the freight docks at night in high school. You guys would call that second level. And uh, when I was there, then I joined the union. And that was where I first joined the IWW when I was 17, uh, IU 530 freight handlers. And I did that throughout high school. And then when I finished high school, like the week before I graduated, I went down to the hall and I joined the United Brotherhood of Carpenters, United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners of America, uh, local 1068. And I embarked on a career in construction. And that's where I find myself 20 years later, um, now firmly, you know, ensconced in middle age and with a nice paunch with the mortgage and, and all that good stuff. But that was really my baseline and and i i drifted away from the more puritanical aspects of uh of politics like with a capital p and it was really all about you know either preserving what little rights the working class had in our communities or kind of expanding the cage floor so to speak for for fighting for new things and then just trying to to navigate that and that's that's really were my first experiences. I mean, I did some early on anti-NAFTA stuff, uh, some protests, things like that. And that was again, interesting, but, but my main connection at that point was really just tying into the organized labor movement. Mm. Did you find the IWW a welcoming home for your particular brand of what, what's clearly anarchism, I guess, in a sense, or anarchist socialist um, viewpoints? I, I, how did you find the IWW as an organization? Just in general terms, I mean, did you enjoy being a member and being part of it yeah I, I would say so I, I was a member for for many years I, I think the one thing that i should say as like an overarching policy is is uh my unmitigated failure in most things that i've tried and attempted there have been a few <laughs> things that we did that really succeeded but but i think um god was it was it was it colin b who who talked about like uh like the age of failure the age of defeat yeah it's um, yeah. kind of yeah and so that was something that that i identified with heavily um, I mean, early on, man, you're just willing to put your wheel to the grindstone and like yeah. whatever it is, jump 110 percent in. When I got involved, there was not a local branch. There were there were members there, but there was not an active local branch. So I actually got to know some very good people at, at general headquarters. I worked heavily with them for a number of years. Uh, but we were able to get a branch started back locally. We had at least at least one organizing success on, on, a, in a, on a job site, mm. uh, a TV station up in Boulder. I believe they are still union to this day, but I'll be quite honest. They they organized themselves. They just came to us and said, hey, let, let us join your union. Mm. And and it worked out well. But I mean, I was able to help participate in that to a, to a certain extent and spearhead that. Mm. I think when I had joined the IWW, there was um, like the old activist cadre who were even more used to defeat than I was. And they were totally resigned to staying out of the workplace and and just keeping keeping the flag flying. Right. Not necessarily trying to, to expand the cage floor, but just keep it going and breaking that mold to say, that's great. We're going to protests or we're flying for this. That's fine. Or, or doing it, you know agitation and putting up stickers that's good but let's if if you can't deal with the scheduling conflict 
you're not going to overthrow the capitalist system. And that was really always my, like, I'm a meat potatoes type guy. And so it has to start from there. And so again, radicalism to me, uh, especially in the workplace is changing the dynamics of power, right? I'm not interested in, I mean, I'm interested in, but at the end of the day, you, you can't eat an ideology. You can't, you can't do anything with a flag. You have to take care of the people in your community and in your family to start with. And so mm -hmm. the ability to empower people to start making those choices, because I'm not interested in being a grand poobah uh, in a union that doesn't interest me. It should have done it, should have done it in the carpenters because they, they gave they would have given me a much better wage than I got on the building site, but <laughs> it just, it didn't, it didn't fit good. Right. I mean, 90 K a year in a new Yukon would have been great and life-changing, but this just wasn't, wasn't my bag. So that was something that I was very, very passionate about. And yeah, I did come to loggerheads with a, a lot of people early on in the, in the local uh, group over that eventually, mm. but you know, I mean, advancing diversity, I suppose, would be my saying. I mean, there's so much work to be done at that time and obviously still today that uh, it was, you know, that's OK. There's, there's room enough for everybody. But I made a lot of great friends, uh, good buddy of mine in Liverpool, still a member, mm -hmm. uh, good people and, and just across the U.S. who are still either involved in that or just still in the trades uh, towards the end of my time was very heavily involved in, uh, I mean, so again, the IWW has a, an industrial wheel. So all industries are broken up by numbers. Mm -hmm. So department 300 is construction. So 330 would be the building trades. So that's where I was and, and got very active in trying to build that in the latter years and made a lot of good friends that I can still talk to today. Another thought about the IWW. Um, we'll come to your interest in Ireland in a few minutes, but in terms of the international struggle and in terms of um, an international awareness, as a member of the IWW in the aughts and the, the early 2000s, was there ever any mention of Ireland? I'm just, this is, again, this is, again, a sideline, but I'm, I'm just curious. Did it figure, um, would you say? Yeah, yeah. No, well, I mean, it did and it didn't. So so I was also, uh, in the early aughts, I was on the internet. I chaired it, well, I chaired it uh, very badly, might I add, uh, the International Solidarity Committee, which right. was kind of like, relayed that. So, so, in short, obviously, um, you had the, the the Irish Congress trade unions, the ICTU, I believe, off the top of my head. Um, yeah. The 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 kind of independent radical union sphere at that time um, was the IWU. Mm. I can't remember if that's independent or the Irish. I think it's the Independent Workers Union. That that was really tied into that. Uh, during my time, the IWW in the UK, I mean, Britain in particular, uh, grew. They were involved in a lot of stuff over there. Mm -hmm. Germany saw a resurgence, um, just quite frankly, because the FAU, which would be like the – because, again, right, so the IWW is a apolitical, non-political union, right? They don't associate things. Yeah. They're not – they're most associated with syndicalism, right? So they're very – tied in with anarchism but they're not an explicitly anarchist organization so the fau in germany which would be the quote the closest equivalent was seen by a number of people there as maybe a little too sectarian towards that and that there was again there was um gr open ground to maybe grow the, the workers struggle in the way that was maybe not quite so sectarian um right. so that was that was that grew there 
my my wife, uh, I met her in the IWW. She was an officer and, and did a lot of work there. She was heavily involved because she actually she was born in Hungary and she immigrated to America. Mm-hmm. So anything in Eastern Europe, she got dragged into. Um, that was and and then had to and she also tried for a number of years to to build bridges to radical organizations in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. So that was something that they tried, but it's rocky soil. I mean, that's the reality, right? The, the whole, we talk about Soviet union kind of buggered things up for a generation is, was very true. And it was either people who would apologize for 56 and say the Russians were right to invade or not at all. And I mean, it's, it seems ludicrous 50 years plus later, you know, 70 now. Right. But still talking about that stuff, but those are the defining features and it's, it's a weird it's a weird blind spot for that, but yeah, Germany, England, uh, well, the Britain, I would say, I don't want to say England, but Britain, mm. they were able to grow. And I know for a fact that the IWW has branched out into Ireland, yeah. uh, I believe in Derry and in the South. Uh, I have not uh, talked to those people, but I know they're there. And I mean, you know, everyone's doing the good work trying to move things forward. Brilliant. Okay. Now, this brings us to your own interest in Ireland and how that developed and your interest in Irish republicanism and socialism. Like, how did that come about? Well, you know how I referenced earlier that I've got like a really strong nerdy streak? Yeah. So so I've always had, I mean, back to back to being a, a child, like, you know, like eight, nine years old, I would just, I, I read history books. Well, so I always read history books. It's just kind of what I did, but you'd find something and you'd latch onto it. Well, so this is like pre-internet or i mean very early days like aol chat rooms right there wasn't a lot of international politics Mm -hmm. and so i I all did all the military history of america and and all that type stuff and then anyone i mean i had friends who were well actually i did a friend in high school who was actually irish uh from well he was from winnipeg but his mom dad and his older brother were from dublin so so I, I had some Irish friends and I hung out with them a little bit and, and we had some fake IDs when we were 18 and we'd go to all the bars and cause trouble. Um, I can say that now it's probably 20 years later. So, yeah. you know, it, it, we're all just, we'll just assume that's okay. And, and raise the ruckus. Yeah. Well, I mean, if that's the worst thing I ever confessed to that's that's okay. That's pretty well common knowledge. Okay. So, um, you know, there was that, but essentially it was one of the, the few accessible things when you go to a library, because I mean, the other areas of interest for me and obviously the odds were obviously the, the dissolution of Yugoslavia. Right. And those mm-hmm. those wars that happened there, um, Eastern European history was another one. And then obviously, as I got older, uh, you know, radical labor history. But, you know, you'd be amazed before really, I'd say 2000, like the mid 2000s it was very difficult to find anything. And, and again, I, I didn't have, I, I eventually learned how to work. Uh, I believe it's called the world cat system uh, at the yeah. library, right. Where you can act like you're an academic and you, you'd yeah. kind of blow a little bit of smoke. Like, Oh, I'm working on like a term paper and, and da, 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 da. so I was able to get some text, but I mean, you have to understand, I mean, for all their faults, Tim Pat Coogan and, you know, uh, Bauer Bell and mm. I mean, even Jerry Adams, their work were some of the only works that you could find right on that. And also for a guy like me who didn't, I, 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 you know, look, my family came over between two world wars on which we were on the wrong side. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not like anyone was really gunning to teach German and Hungarian to their kids. So 
for better or for worse, tax on Hungary didn't exist. Yugoslavia didn't really exist except for general histories. So Ireland is one of the few places that you could maybe get a more in-depth view of politics. I mean, mm. and, and mainly through the writings of guys like Jerry Adams. And it's obviously the, the bias there is obvious, but it's a little bit more in-depth than, say, a general history. Right. Mm-hmm. And even that, though, I mean, to think about it, I mean, Jay Barbell and, and, and Tim Pat Coogan. And I, yes, I'm, I'm again, I'm well aware of having gone back now and all that you can pick apart their stuff very easily. But at the time, it was kind of an eye opener to a, a history that was still in the making as it is mm-hmm. now. But you have yeah. to, you know, things like I, it's not like I could just tune on to RTE back in the day and and go from there or, or or even i mean more in depth than that quite frankly like indie media was a site that i'm we all remember from the early 2000s i'm sure yeah. Yeah. but but that was kind of in its fledgling days and so uh found my way there eventually found slugger o'toole yeah, yeah. and politics.ie and and did that and then eventually cedar lounge and uh I started trolling and, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting because when you say it like that, it actually begins to make a lot of sense because you, you made the point there about the, there's the wars in the former Yugoslavia and that's all happening in the aughts and it's happening in the 2000s. And and the peace process, of course, uh, and everything that comes with that and the huge uh, um, focus internationally on the peace process comes around in that time period as well so actually it, it really does make sense i guess the interesting thing is that you began to dig further back into the past as well and you really began to um become interested in in the deep history of it i guess well man anyone can just read the fucking news that's not <laughs> interesting i mean it's it's i mean look i was the type of guy or the kid I mean, i was a kid then let's be honest I would I would read the newspaper back. I mean, shout out to something that doesn't exist anymore, but the Rocky Mountain News. There were there were two newspapers in Denver growing up, the Rocky Mountain News and Denver Post. As a Rocky Mountain Newsman, will be to the day I die. Um, but I would go through that every day, and I would clip out like the international affairs section. And I had a whole wall in my bedroom in high school mm-hmm. with international affairs stuff, right? And and the the photojournalism and all that type stuff. So yeah, I, I've always been one to understand why. Mm-hmm. It, it's fairly simple to understand the what, but to understand the why has always been more of a, a challenge, I guess. And that's something that's interested me far, far more. Not for a right or for wrong, but just like, oh, okay, I get that. Now, you came over to Ireland. You've been in Ireland once, I think. Is that correct? Yeah, I want to say... Oh, you know what? I should know this because my wife and I just talked about our anniversary. Right. So, so we went so we went on a European trip. So we, we went to England and then to France and then we flew from Paris to Dublin and then mm. I did a tour. I did I did a loop around Ireland and I mean probably I did it backwards but case raw. Um but I proposed to my wife at that I proposed to my wife on like New Year's Eve in two thousand six in France at a castle. And so right. that's how I know that's how I know the exact point when because we, <laughs> we were comparing marriage notes today about uh when our anniversary is how many years we've been married because i just said it feels like longer which got the response that you'd expect um but yeah so i came over in i mean obviously early 2007 and and went up um again came in town in dublin rented a car um it was cheaper so i rented a standard and thank god mm. i'm a redneck so like i grew up on all manual transmissions but learning how to shift with my left hand i'm pretty mm. proud of that fact like i had it down pat pretty quick um 
went up north, did the, we stayed actually at a, a little B&B that my in-laws had stayed at just south of Ballymena. And so we hung out in Northern Ireland for a couple of days in, I mean, January. It was fine. It was nice. I mean, I, like most places, I'll be honest, I like the countryside far better than I like the cities. Mm-hmm. Again, I go back to that kind of redneck thing. Like, I hate Paris. It's like a gutter, in my opinion. But, man, I love the French countryside. And shout out to the French. 15 separate breeds of pointing dogs they have created. Just mwah, love those people. Good, good people. But, uh, but I mean, I, I love the, you know, again, Northern Irish countryside um, is kind of funny. I mean, again, I I'd love to, I mean, after all that stuff, right. I started a little blog called misanthropy abroad, but, mm. but it was more just like a, a take on innocence abroad. And, and very much at that point, it kind of was, it was like never been out of the country, not a well-traveled man or a worldly person still yeah. not, but at that point, even more naive, I guess yeah. you'd say. And, and so you're like, Oh, you know, so when you're driving around, you're doing like the, the touristy things. They're just seeing the sights. It was kind of funny, like, oh, I'm in a nationalist town because there's not a bunch of graffiti about how we're going to kill all the tags. So oh, it was an you. interesting point in that one. Like, it just just as a as a person coming into it with with an awareness, mm. but not. Um, I don't want to say like like a great deal of exposure or or that. It was kind of interesting to to see that one, mm. and and so we enjoyed our time there. And then again, we we did everything backwards because that's how I roll. Like we spent some time in Galway on the coast and. I loved it. It was, it was awesome. And then went down to Limerick uh, and spent some time there and had a nice little, a little visit with some locals and and got to see some local color uh, before coming back to Dublin. So Mm -hmm. it was a good time. Did you wind up on an RSF march or is that my imagination? (laughs) Yeah. Well, there you go. I I set that one up, but yes, I, uh, (laughs) I did. So we were there. And we saw posters for a, uh, a Sean South March. And, and as every good person who studies things, uh, musicology is also part of that. And it's something that I found, quite frankly, really fascinating is that how so much of the struggle has kind of been encapsulated in song mm. versus just the written word. Right. I mean, you can't really find a book on Sean South, but my God, you can't throw a stone in an Irish music section without someone doing a cover of Sean South to Gary Owen. So mm. we did. But but as every good American who's totally ignorant of of local politics uh, and a guy who worked in construction. So, again, in construction, if you're two minutes late, you're you might as well be two hours late. So, like, I show up early for everything, especially, you know, I'm, I'm a guy who works by the clock mm. as, as, a, as a wage worker. So we showed up like an hour early. Just and it's like, you know, what else can you do? You're in Limerick for the day. We ended up there and everyone everyone gets up and, you know, the, the, the Fianna are there and the kids are lining up and they're doing their shtick and. And then, you know, special branch comes around and they're questioning everybody. And I'm like, we're talking with this dude who looked like he slept rough. And I'm like, man, you're looking rough. But he's a nice guy. And he, you know, he liked to drink now and then as, mm. as, as was his want. And so he was kind of giving us the ins and out. And, and so, yeah, then special branch came up and interviewed us. So I'm on record with special branch in Ireland and they didn't really quite, you know, where are you from? And you tell them like, what the, you know, I mean, cause this is Limerick. This isn't even the big Brookboro, you know, commemoration that mm. the provisionals do, you know what I mean? Up, up North. This mm. is, this is just the, the local Limerick. Now this year was good. Cause I mean, I saw Martin Ferris there. Uh, Martin McGinnis was the, the main speaker. So, but 
we lined up with Republican and I'm like, ah, let's wait for the provisionals. Like, this is a little too much team for me. Like, that's just a little too hardcore. But then how my buddy goes, realize, how oh, did you, re- how did you realize it was Republican Sinn Féin? Was it the banners? Well, I mean, there, there was chit chat. I mean, you know, you, you finally, and again, my, my, my new buddy, he's a good, he's a good guy, but he's a born again, fundamentals, Christian photographer. Um, oh. nice guy. We, we went out drinking that night. It was good times. Mm. Um, so he took off with Republican Sinn Féin and then we waited around and then the provisionals formed up and then they took off. And, and so we just kind of straggled along with them. And then, you know, it was interesting to see the, the banter back and forth between the two marches as they progressed. You know, right. one guy was pretty funny. He's like, he's like Republican Sinn Féin for the politics provisionals for the company. And then he hopped <laughs> over since their march was done and hopped over with the provisional thing. <laughs> and, and we just went and we, we listened to it and it was, it was interesting. Um, you know, it, I don't want to say there's a disconnect between the South and the North and, and listening to Martin McGinnis and, and I mean, paying attention to stuff, but I mean, he gave obviously a good historical overview, nothing too crazy. Um, Jerry Adams, I mean, I reflect now had given the speech for the Brookborough commemoration, but then Martin uh, transitioned very heavily into kind of like the nuts and bolts of what was going on in the North mm-hmm. at that point. And I mean, he was a formidable speaker. I mean, it was, you could just, I, I mean, I don't listen to politicians talk that often and I don't go to commemorations except for, I mean, I would obviously go to um, the Ludlow massacre commemorations here in Colorado, which was a, a mining massacre of union mine workers on strike back in 1914. Um, that'd be about the only thing that I could say, or even the 56 uh, commemorations for the Hungarian uprising here. We do have a statue to that here in Denver because there's a bunch of, or there were, they've all passed now, but there were a bunch of 56ers here in, in Denver. So I used to go to those right. too, but, but I don't, it's not something I, I, am not a, I'm not a protest type guy. So that's mm-hmm. not something I do often. Maybe I, I can maybe count on one hand, two hands if I do my lifetime, but not more than that. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, so I heard Martin making a speak and saw Martin Ferris and, you know, saw some banter back and forth and then went and drank some beer and, you know, was it, it was interesting. Was there any antagonism between RSF and PSF? on the day or Sinn Féin on the day? Uh, I mean, you know, there was some, I mean, again, right. The, the, the back, there was obviously some back and forth, uh, you know, some cat calls, but it struck me as a family dispute, right? They, right. they all knew each other. It wasn't, um, again, I couldn't speak to it, but I'm sure there's a thriving Republican community, but it's not that fucking big. You know what I mean? So, so these splits are, are more like an argument amongst family. And I would imagine again, right. They're there commemorating something in the past. It's not like they're debating, future policy this brings us to the the other part of this podcast because we thought knowing you as we do it'd be interesting for you to run an eye across some texts that we think are interesting as well and maybe to have something which is positioned halfway between a book review and and a broader discussion on uh, republicanism and socialism and and to that end We've been looking at Official Irish Republicanism, 1962 to 1972 by Sean Swan, which was published in 2008 as a book. Um, Sean Swan has been, could well be, currently professor in the International Studies Department at Gonzaga University. But the the book itself, Official Irish Republicanism, is essentially based on his thesis, his PhD thesis, uh, at the University of Ulster in 2006, um, which was supervised by Henry Patterson. Uh, and indeed, for those who haven't read it, we'd recommend you read it. Um, for those 
who are interested in it but maybe aren't quite ready to commit, you can actually go to the Cain website, C-A-I-N website, and they have uh, chapter six in its uh, entirety there to read for free as well as the contents and all the rest of it. Uh, so, well, see, here's just my, my, my general opinion, right? So this book predates the Lost Revolution um, by a number of months. Yeah. And, and quite frankly, this is the perfect prequel to the Lost Revolution, right? And it's, it's, yeah. it's one of the few, if, because I think we all agree, there's so many freaking books on the provisionals that like, I don't care what Jerry Adams did. Like, I feel like mm. they're going to do like, he had this for lunch on a Tuesday, but there's so little in the lead up to this, right? I mean, you've got the War of Independence and then you have this huge drought. I, I mean, off the top of my head, there's only one book I can think of, which is Soldiers of Folly about Operation Harvest, right? And really mm. post-war it republicanism. Yeah, yeah. I think another one came out more recently, but I could be wrong there, actually. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the point, but especially for the time that it came out, this was literally the only work out there that really, in my mind, gave us, uh, because it was actually got published as a book, actually, you know, mm. the lead up to the split in a scholarly manner and actually really did it justice, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. So my thought process and how I've approached it is, I think what sets this, I mean, again, The Lost Revolution and, and other works by, by Brian Hamlin and Scott Miller uh, have been awesome. And one of the things they really brought to the table was access to the executive committee notes, uh, mm. you know, obviously post split. And I think that's one of the things that Swan really brings to the table is he, he had access to those. So as he traces this build of the new departure, which obviously ended in the split, he has access to those notes where he paints a very nuanced picture. And he doesn't, you know, in, in the introduction and the conclusions, he certainly doesn't mince words, but I think, like the meat of this sandwich, if this was like a Reuben sandwich, the meat of it is those executive committee notes and how he's able to access that and, and parse that up and talk about things like O'Brady and McStalfin were, were on board, right. For so long. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. And, and it's, it's, it is a fairly nuanced picture and it's not quite as simple or, or clear cut as the communists took in, they manipulated everybody and then they woke up and while the provisionals, right. It's mm. not, that simple there's a lot of stuff um in there but I, I think you you generally covered it but essentially yeah it's a reuben sandwich uh, by the way i should point out sean swan is no relation to me uh i've never met him i have no connection whatsoever with him but um more's pity more is the pity indeed indeed <laughs> uh i think it's no harm if i give a little context uh contextual overview of the book itself the book itself obviously deals with the period it says the official Irish Republicanism. And I guess in a sense that is true in that the main thrust of the book is to engage with the process by which official Irish Republicanism became official Irish Republicanism from that period from 1962 through to 1972. Um, the book itself is broken up into eight chapters, um, including an introduction and a conclusion. Chapter two, for instance, gives context and contradiction. And in a sense, that's engaging with aspects of what is republicanism, what is socialism in the context of Ireland. And we might go into some of that in a few minutes. Uh, chapter three is after the harvest, after Operation Harvest. Uh, I think it's fair to say Swan doesn't mince his words on harvest. He says that in a sense, harvest was unserious or it was not a serious effort to destabilise uh, Northern Ireland. Chapters four and five deal with 1964 to five and 1966 to 1967 inside the republican movement of the time. And the clear shift, I think, towards an explicitly socialist um, 
framework that they sought to reposition Irish republicanism within and how that was put forward and and in a sense the very tentative nature of it. Uh, chapter 6, Ireland as it should be versus Ireland as it is, is the title of that and that deals with the period January 1968 to August 1969, obviously a period of incredible uh, ferment in uh, the North at that point in time. And then Chapter 7 deals with defending Stormont, defeating the EEC, which is August 1969 to May 1972. And I guess one can see by that, like that's six odd chapters. Five of them deal with the historic situation, um, say 1962 onwards to 1972. And it's quite a testament, I think, to the that the work itself, that it actually manages to, to get to grips with all those parts of that history. In quite comprehensive detail, I think we will agree. He certainly gets into the weeds of the debates within Sinn Féin during the period. But maybe to start off there, one of the most interesting aspects of it, I think, is the definitions of republicanism. Um, and he argues that, in a sense, separatism was key to the officials. And he quotes Tomás McGill in 1970 saying, Republicanism contains three fundamental principles, separatist, socialist and non-sectarian. And Swan really argues the separatist aspect goes right the way back to tone. But he then knows that Des O'Hagan in 1975 reworks this to be separatist, secular and socialist. And then later again, this is reconfigured once more. Des O'Hagan later on, in 1998, Des O'Hagan completely revises 1975 definition, arguing that republicanism is, in my view, democratic, international, secular and socialist. He completely jettisoned separatist. So, in the space of 20-odd years, it had moved from separatist, socialist and non-sectarian to separatist, secular and socialist, and then obviously by 1998, democratic, internationalist, secular and socialist. Uh, it's it's actually adding on elements. Uh, but the, the, the addition of democratic and the loss of separatist seem to be the key points there. Uh, that's Republicanism, as the officials developed, moved away from separatism and it moved towards socialism. And and in a sense, if we go all the way back to those debates you're talking about there and the, the notes from the AC and all the rest of it and, and, and the other organs within Sinn Féin during the 1960s, there seems to be this inching towards socialism, even if it's a very unformed concept of socialism during that period would you tend to agree i think well again right i I called this thing a reuben sandwich because Mm. again like the meat of it is really the executive committee notes and the development of the new departure and the context in which it occurred Mm. but like if it was me like what has kept me coming back to this book because i read it in 2009 and and quite frankly even then i loved it it was one of the best books i have ever read but like if I would throw the corned beef out and, and I would leave the sauerkraut because that's like the Northern Ireland stuff. But I'd be doing like an Instagram story on this artisanal vegan rye marbled bread that is so awesome. And I think what makes it so awesome is that he broaches these topics of like what is republicanism and not just in the terms of like the 1960s up until the split in 1970s, but even like historically, right? Because mm. he talks about tone and 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 kind of what that is and how exceptional that was. And he makes a yeah. very important note in the beginning and the end. He says, like the unity of Catholic, Protestant, and dissenter was its uniqueness. Like again, he points out by the time of Emmett's rebellion in 1803, off the top of my head, mm. uh, you know, the, the people putting it down had been United Irishmen. 
right? And then even Conley had noted, and he points out that, that Conley and Tone both serve as tokens for socialism, right? Yeah. The, the, even Conley noted, who had experience in Belfast with Larkin and, and, and the workers' unions, that it wasn't all rosy. And I think there's a lot there, that the exceptionality of Tone and also, well, quite frankly, the misquoting of Tone, right? Because mm. Tone's objective was to break the ties with England, right? His, his means that he was going to do that by was by uniting Catholic, Protestant, and dissenter. Mm. But that's a man of his time. If I told you I was going to go plow a field, like my goal is to raise corn, and now I'm going to go plow a field. If I was writing prior to the, the, the development of the tractor, it would make sense to say I'm going to harness a horse with a plow, and I'm going to go plow the field. If in 2021 you said I'm going to go grow some corn, and you said I'm going to go get a, a draft horse and a plow, you'd be looked at like you're blinking crazy. Mm. And I think the the ability to appreciate things for their time and even the exceptionality of those instances in their time because it very much was that is i think what keeps swan's book um relevant uh, aside from a, a nice history of the contextualization of the new departure mm. in the 60s mm. well i mean you raised an interesting question there a moment ago how mcsiphon and abradi managed to stay on board until one minute to midnight uh, in terms of Sinn Féin before the split and this sense of, you know, whether there was a certain degree of contrivance in that, in that they were staying on board in order to, knowing that they would leave and accepting some uh, suggestions which at this remove seem to have been exceedingly uh, ambitious on the part of people putting them within the Republican movement in terms of the, the reorganization of the movement, not exclusively towards political aims whatsoever, but much, much more towards that and stripping out so many elements that would have made it traditional Irish Republican. Uh, would you say that's fair? Yeah, but I, I also think, and this is something that I've reflected on in, in the last year, right? So mm. after after Operation Harvest, I mean, it was a it was a busted flush, right? I mean, physical force republicanism, as it was known since the Tan Wars, the War of Independence, or however you want to articulate it, like it was done. Like it, mm. it could not do anything. So I think obviously the Northerners and even the most ardent physical force Republicans could acknowledge that you had to go back to the drawing board. Mm. And you also had that I mean, the 60s, right? So, I mean, you had socialism in the 60s that could encompass, especially in the early to mid 60s, right? That could encompass everything from agricultural cooperatives in the west of Ireland, right? To Paris 1968, uh, the mm. Vatican II, and everything in between, right? It was a big tent approach. Mm. And especially, you know, to, to get engaged. And I mean, even the Northerners were the biggest proponents of this because it played out on their doorsteps. Mm. So, you had that approach where I don't see inherently I, there's any contradiction in the, the stalwarts of the provisionals, future provisionals, saying we have to have some sort of political program to engage people. Because, quite frankly, I think you've seen that play out in the, I mean, post, even post O'Brady and post McStaffin provisionals. They did engage in the local politics and made themselves relevant in that account. Mm. So I, I, I don't see that because you even see that amongst people with the officials um oh who is the who is the guy there who went with the inla 
Oh, this is where I should have been. James Costello. Yeah. Or, I mean, obviously he was, he was, you know, a militarist, but someone who believed in the political development. So it's not, it's not a black and white thing, right? It's, it's a nuanced shades of gray type argument where it's one is not exclusive to the other. And I think one of the other things that he points out is that, man, there's, there's the North South dynamic of obviously the North and then Mm. Dublin, which was the home base for that. And then you have progress in in England, right. With the election of a labor government and the, the passing of the old guard, but even, even within the Republic of Ireland, the Western Ireland and that kind of, that mentality there versus Dublin and just all the, all the kind of the cross corridors of uh, communication and ideas. Mm, Everyone's true. got their own baggage, you know, so it's not quite black and white. Yeah. I mean, I guess the thing I'm, I guess in a sense, what I'm trying to get at it to some degree is I wonder how much longer they stayed on board uh, than they actually felt comfortable with, because when provincial Sinn Féin was established, it was a very different organization to official Sinn Féin and it was in some respects, in opposition uh, to the way that official Sinn Féin was shifting left more and more leftwards, even though, of course, provisional Sinn Féin still uh, made some obeisance towards um, left-wing thinking and to socialism, albeit a, a different strand of socialism. But even even within the officials, uh, as you move into the 70s, the early 70s, uh, it's clear that the, 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 the form of socialism isn't completely fixed upon until well into the mid-1970s, at least on the part of many people inside the official movements, uh, which is why you have such a variegated mix of people who are members of official Sinn Féin in 1970, 71, 72, 73, some of whom drift away, some of whom later go on to the uh, IRSP. And it's only when the officials, in a sense, and as far as I'm aware, slightly quietly adopted Marxist-Leninism as an organisational principle uh, and of course democratic centralism as such that, that the party moves towards a orientation that is more clearly more pro-Soviet or more in the line of orthodox Marxism than not. Uh, albeit there were some interesting aspects to it later on which seem to see that it's still kind of kept a certain sort of distance from that. But, but you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to look at this and say, well, of course, uh, Obradi or McSiffon knew all of this was going to happen in 1967, 1968, uh, whatever people say subsequently. Well, it, it is easy to play Monday morning quarterback. I mean, that's, mm. that's the whole point. I, I think, honestly, the, why I said, like, I've been thinking about thought a lot in the last year, which is the pandemic and then obviously the the protest against racial injustice here in America mm. has got me thinking a lot because a lot of it is ad hocracy. And I am I mean, obviously, I can't be anything other than American, but obviously I felt a deep shame. Right. Seeing the, the murder of George Floyd on video. Mm. But it's with even deeper shame that I can say that's nothing new. Right. Yeah. That's to see police brutalize and, and murder people of color. Is, is not new, right? But for some reason, this particular one kicked off something larger than itself and, and something that I don't think that anybody saw coming, mm. right? And so in that sense, to, to judge the new departure, like it was going on track. Mm. And then the violence of August 69, I think really 
through a, a spanner in in the works, right? It's just that that's what you guys call a wrench, right? You call yeah. you call them spanners. Well, okay, well, there you go. Internationalism incarnate today, folks. Yeah. Yeah. So, but but that's the point, right? Is that no one anticipated that mm. happening, and and within that new departure and leftism, right? Uh, Pat O'Donnell decries like the, again, we don't have a, a thing of the IRA in Belfast. We have an armed battalion of Catholics, right? Mm. But Swan points out, he doesn't understand why that is like he decries it, but mm. he doesn't understand that. I mean, 40 years ago, right. With the formation of the state, you had the Belfast pogroms and you had massive violence towards, I mean, socialists and Catholics and the expulsions from the shipyards and all that. I mean, I'm sure he's aware of it. Right. But then there's, there's, intellectual knowing and there's like knowing with the two by four upside the head yeah. um yeah and i feel like that's one of those things that nobody really saw coming and had things progressed differently with the civil rights in northern ireland who knows where the new departure may have been or ended up quite frankly mm. well it is interesting because swan makes an interesting point that uh in some ways if the background hadn't been there of the civil rights protests and then the shading towards violence on the streets in many respects as a response to that uh, the split in Sinn Féin in the late 1960s would have been different and possibly one which could have been would have had a minimal impact I think that's more or less way, the way he goes about it which which seems an amazing analysis in a sense because perhaps that's true perhaps it would have been a case of the new departure would have won out in some form or fashion a small discontented rump of people would have then walked away and you would have had a situation where potentially what was now the new departure version of Sinn Féin would have gone on to perhaps build some space for itself though again Swan is very very uh, skeptical about the National Liberation Front and even, even in a sense, the focus on abstentionism, which is something we haven't discussed so far, but I mean, the whole focus on abstentionism as a major plank inside uh, what became the official movement and, you know, the necessity to get rid of abstentionism so that it could build a political base and a parliamentary base and so forth. Uh, he, he seems to see that, well, he seems to cast a bit of a sceptical eye on that. And certainly he's very sceptical about the National Liberation Front, the idea that the... That, Sinn Féin would work in tandem with the CP, well, actually the Workers' Party, I think, of Ireland at this stage, and uh, the CP, the Communist Party of Northern Ireland, and possibly the Labour Party in some sort of broader left-wing lash-up. Uh, but what what's your feeling there? I mean, do you think any of those were flyers, the National Liberation Front's idea, the, the idea that jettisoning, jettisoning abstention would in and of itself change things? It didn't seem to do so for either provisional Sinn Féin or official Sinn Féin for quite some time to come. Again, I, I would actually, I'm going to tie it back into something, obviously I said even earlier before we got into Ireland, which is, you know, broadening the cage floor, right? In, in my mm. opinion, they felt that ending abstentionism would allow recognizing the reality within the Republic of Ireland so mm. they could fight the the existing injustices there. So I, in that sense, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to it on, on the one hand. Right. I mean, Swan points out this great thing where there was a there was a, a Republican uh, old farmer that owned a small farm and mm. he had to cycle over 10 miles to the next town to collect his pension. And he couldn't take it in his town because he didn't want to acknowledge that he recognized the free state. But then the reality of his economic situation necessitated taking that pension. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so in that sense, we think of abstentionism 
as this writ large electing TDs and and going from there. But you can very much see the argument for like, hey, this just recognizes reality. The Republic of Ireland is an entity and you can't wish it out of existence any more than you could wish the Irish Republic into existence. Mm. And that's in that sense, I'm very sympathetic to it. And again, had violence not erupted in 69, then there's no saying, you know, what could happen again. He Swan points out as well. Small splits within Republicanism are endemic, right? That standing joke. What's the first thing you do when you get three Republicans in a room? You split. Yeah. Like it's there. It's a, it's a, it's a standing joke. But obviously, on on this count, um, and again, you're taking into account regional differences, right? For for the Kerry Republicans, that was a hill we're dying on. For someone in Dublin who's who's not you know tied up in that there's not a hill worth dying on mm. and and even, even people in the north were split on that fact yeah. had there been a stronger defenderist defenderist spirit and i i that's a whole loaded term and i hate to use it because we're using it in a with a small d there yeah. which kind of depoliticizes it had there been a a more nuanced approach to the north who's saying what could have happened mm. yeah all these things they all seem to interconnect um you know, the civil rights movement and the, the agitation for change on that front. And Swan is very strong on the idea that the instant that started, that became an existential threat, an absurd, a subversive threat to the existence of Northern Ireland in a way that something like Operation Harvest wasn't. In terms of striking at the constitutional setup of Northern Ireland, the civil rights movement functioned in a different sort of fashion to the perhaps more obvious military but not very great threat of the IRA. And that for a society which depended in a sense upon a political structure which didn't have one person, one vote, one man, one vote as it was at the time, um, at the base of it, to alter that was to call into question the very nature of the state and to potentially have, as I say, an existential threat further down the line. Now, the interesting thing there is that to some degree, although the Republican movement was very heavily involved in this, the issue from the point of view of the Republican movement was some of what was happening seems to have been completely outside its gaze and its its understanding that events were happening on the ground, which it actually had much, much less influence over, if any at all, than might have been anticipated and certainly that some of the caricatures would propose. There seems to be this sort of thing whereby omniscience is mapped onto players in all the different strands that are in play during the 1960s, when in actual fact, their oversight of what was actually happening was actually quite limited uh, and in some ways didn't exist at all. I would totally, I mean, I totally agree with that. I mean, it, that's my comment of adhocracy, right? I, it's, mm. I can empathize with, you're dealing with something that you'd never thought about before or really taken into serious consideration. Um, I mean, it was, it was, kind of talked about he said operation harvest i mean let's be quite honest like the lasting legacy of that is is a tom clancy novel made into a movie with harrison ford and <laughs> and a republican ballad by that, that that got me into limerick and got me on a silly parade but like it it went tits up right it just yeah. it failed exponentially because it wanted to be pure right they wanted to wear uniforms they only wanted to engage uh the british army right whereas 
you know, the Northern population knew it wasn't just the British Army. I mean, look, you couldn't engage a B special, but the B specials were more than happy to engage the IRA, right? So that reality there. And the other thing was that, I mean, this is kind of like, I guess the other, like, I should make it a point. We're, we're making, we're talking about obviously a historical period and broad brushes of history, but we're also talking about uh, very real you know, pain, trauma, death, and those things like that, the very human element that can't be overlooked. But there's a big difference between the IRA waiting in a roadside, letting the B-specials pass by so they can try to attack a, a British army truck versus shooting a farm in a field, right? Mm -hmm. Had Operation Harvest done that, that would have been a very different response, but it didn't. And so in that sense, it remained pure, but as he points out, it's facile. It, it was of no real consequence, yeah. In in that perspective, and I think that really does do that, and that's the point. It's that civil rights, right? I mean, quite frankly, British rights for British citizens is is still an issue, because mm. I mean, it is is. I mean, and I don't mean to call everyone on I British, but blah blah. You get what I'm saying. The point is, like, we just had this last week, the Bolly Murphy massacre, pointing out, stating the bleeding obvious: the innocent civilians were killed by the British Army, mm. the same as Bloody Sunday. And it takes 50 years to state the obvious. You know what I mean? Is that that's that's the challenge of that one. And and but also it also points out the the shortcomings of civil rights. If I mean, or even right now with Palestine and Israel, if you can't shame someone into reforming, at what uh, where does that get you? Yeah, yeah. In a sense, the chaos that was there at the end of the 60s. The situation was one where the ante had been upped in so many different ways that it kept on being upped to a certain degree. And there wasn't a space there um, with Stormont failing so abysmally on the security front and, and, and not on the security front, just, not just on the security front, but more broadly on the political front. It's inability to exert any control and ultimately it's inability to exert anything. And having that taken away from it by by London, because there was no other alternative but to have direct rule. Uh, the prorogement of Stormont was uh, a massive sea change in the relationship between London and Northern Ireland. And arguably, arguably is it the root of everything since in that particular context. Um, it seems to me, in a way, we're really agreeing that there seem to be so many different aspects in this uh, post-harvest which were pushing the Republican movement to some sort of different engagement. Harvest had been a disaster. It hadn't worked. There had to be something new. Socialism was modish, I guess, to a certain extent, but it was also logical because Republicanism certainly had some affinity some of the time for socialism. How that would have played out in the absence of the civil rights campaign is hard to say and in the absence of what took place then in 68, 69 and through to 17 onwards. So really the, the, the future course of Sinn Féin, of official Sinn Féin was never necessarily set in stone but, um, and we'll come to that in a moment but I'm just wondering, was there anything about Swan's analysis that surprised you? I think, I mean I think the popular narrative is that the communists came in and blinkered some Rube-esque Republicans. Mm. And when things kicked off in the North, some people, for better or for worse, took off their blinders or left, you know, pick it, right? Who took off their blinders? Either officials or provisionals, take your pick. It depends which side you want to be on. Mm. And then went their separate ways. I think it, it, it uh, 
Swan's analysis really opened my eyes to the fact that it was an organic process with back and forth. One of the things that really surprised me when, when he said, right, so the the motions that caused the split in Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin voted against it. It was yeah. when the IRA, controlled by the new departure, forced it through mm. that the split came, right? So that's the interesting thing is Sinn Féin, for all its sometimes lack of democratic oversight, actually was democratic. And it was when the IRA overturned that that the split became official. I think that's one of the, the greater things and just really highlighting the, again, we're talking about like an existential part about uh, Connolly and tone and just the exceptionality of that moment in 1798. And like, what is Republican? And he dealt with that in a very mature way that it, he even points out, he's like, I'm not here to, you know, let's say indulging in a speculative metaphysical search for genuine Republican. And quite frankly, that, takes place still to this day. Michael McDowell will tell you how Republican he is and his family pedigrees, but he'll tell you for damn sure the provosts aren't. And everyone engages in that, you know, left, right, and center. And I, I think that was one of the points that really stands the test of time. Yeah, that's, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think for myself, there's a range of areas. I've mentioned the NLF side of things, and but one of the really strange ones is the way uh, there was this obsession on the part of the officials and and even prior to the split, this obsession on federalism as a serious option for Northern Ireland in, in, in the case of the abolition of Stormont. They, they appeared almost petrified that Stormont would be abolished and that there would either be a repartition, maybe down to three counties, and uh, you'd presumably then have 29 counties in the republic or alternatively some sort of federal arrangement where the north would gain a sort of semi-independence you know more detached from britain and uh, but this would be somehow within the eec um oh yeah another thing actually one i think one thing that really intrigued me was swan's point that you know one tends to see anti-eec and i'd certainly part assume this myself that some of the anti-EEC stuff was in a sense a direct transposition from orthodox Marxist communist parties uh, antagonistic to the European economic community but he makes a very strong case that in actual fact it was long extant inside um, the Republican movement well prior to any involvement by the communists and and equally that when you look at provisional Sinn Féin they had an equal, if not greater, antipathy towards the EEC as well, that they found it absolutely anathema, uh, the idea of Ireland engaging with the European economic community. And, of course, that was true until of Sinn Féin until relatively recently, really, and even now paint itself as Eurosceptical. So I guess that's that's one. those are a couple of areas that I've found. I think his work really uncovers some interesting aspects of that. Do you think his treatment of unionism does it justice. I think his treatment of unionism actually listens to what unionists say. I think one of the programs, right? I mean, you talk about federalism, anti-EEC, um, even with the provisionals, um, New Ireland, Air Noir, right? Mm-hmm. So they, like, oh, we'll give, yeah, we'll give you this, we'll give you that. But I mean, I think if you listen to unionism, what they say is fairly straightforward, right? I mean, Gregory Campbell, was it on... Uh, Greg Campbell was just on a, a program a little while ago. He had pointed out, he said, look, we're British. Full mm. stop. We don't care about your ploys. We don't care about this. I mean, 
unfortunately, let's be honest, like official republicanism is kind of predicated on the the unionist Protestant working class community just need to be reached with the message of socialism. Right. Mm. But here's the reality. Uh, as Swan points out, Gusty Spence's own brother prior to him reforming the UVF was in the Communist Party of Northern Ireland. Right. Mm. The, the CPNI was as strongest during the war, which obviously Britain and Soviet Union were aligned, which obviously the, the CPNI was almost exclusively Protestant and everything like meshed. Right. Socialism and Great Britain dovetailed together nicely. Mm. So. To act like they don't have class consciousness because no one's going to deny working in the shipyard is easy, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's obviously not true, but it also it kind of lets them off the hook. It's, it's patronizing, quite frankly, because it treats them like, oh, well, you don't know that you're throwing out those nationalist workers or even the socialists out of the shipyard. You're just fooled by the British imperialism. And I, I think that kind of patronizing tone and assuming the unionists didn't have agency, I don't think that's just something that Republicans were guilty of. I mean, Greaves really thought that Britain could dictate to unionists in Northern Ireland how they would believe and what they would do. And I, I think we can all see with the recent past that even to Northern Ireland's own detriment, unionists make their own decisions. And that's, quite frankly, their business to do. And you have to respect them and say, OK, this is what you believe. But then, like any good adult, these are the consequences of your actions. I mean, mm. it's ironic. Like this book has been around for over a decade and within the last couple of years, we've really seen so many topics pop back up that dovetail into this. I mean, the, the, the yeah, Northern Ireland good. Protocol is exactly that. Like the vast majority of unionists voted for Brexit, hmm. knowing full well that it would have implications. And this is the this is the outwork of that. And you can't tell them they were wrong to do it, but there's also the reality of it. And the fact that they've been cut loose by a Tory government time and time again, again, that's their decision to, to make alliances with them. Mm. And I don't mean that's, I mean, I, at some point you just have to say you're an adult, you can make your own decisions and you can respect that because to quite frankly, keep saying they just don't understand what socialism offers them mm. is, is patronizing. And I mean, that's just my opinion and my take on it. Yeah. I mean, he, and I think to kind of link into that, he makes a really interesting point that in some ways the officials did move to a better position insofar as they were taking some heed of unionism. But unfortunately, as you rightly say, because the heed was taken that it was socialism that was going to be the the, the um, lever that would bring unionism into some form of United Ireland. Though, interestingly, the closer they got to one aspect, the less the United Ireland seemed to matter in the near to medium term. It became much more distant as time went on. Uh, it, there was sort of a limit there. And I think Swan Swan has some, and I think this is actually one of the most interesting parts, and certainly for me, one of the most plausible and persuasive aspects of it, of his thesis, where he talks about how it's absolutely essential to understand that on the island of Ireland, it's not two nations, because if it was two nations, it would almost be much simpler. But that it's actually uh, a situation where in the north you have overlapping identities and he makes a very strong point that about about the Good Friday Agreements, Belfast Agreement, that it's absolutely necessary to see that nationalism has a veto power itself and that it has rights of expression. And under the GFABA, these are to at least some extent uh, upheld. Uh, and similarly, the unionism also has rights within this equation as well on the broader island of Ireland, but that nationalism within the north 
has to have a right and has to have a representation and they can't simply be a majoritarian solution because that simply doesn't work. Now, some would, of course, critique that because there's many, many good reasons to critique the GFABA and there's good reasons as well to critique um, the institutions in Northern Ireland and there's problems with that. But certainly one can look back, say, on the last 20 odd years and one can say at least there was a greater level of stability than there was in the preceding well, 30, 20, 50, 70 odd years prior to that. Uh, so I think that what he's saying is quite interesting and quite important in that he sees that there are rights and agency not merely for unionism, which in a sense is one side of it, but also for nationalism and republicanism, uh, not merely on the island of Ireland, but within the, within, the, uh, within the north, within Northern Ireland. Yeah, I would agree. I think one of the great shames is that Unionism as a as a political ideology has kind of served as a back check valve, right? Which means it, it, stuff can only go one way. And the irony is that Northern Ireland has been unionisms to lose since day one. Hmm. And oh. since day one, they have served to alienate and isolate nationalism, which has been growing since the get go of, of the formation. I mean. One of the things that are pointed out in Swan's work is that like the, the the biggest, most stringent voices against the civil rights movement came from the border counties, right? Mm-hmm. And you look at even the formation of Northern Ireland and the Ulster Unionist Council, the Ulster Unionist Council was originally nine counties, right? And the Realpolitik kicked in and they said, you know what, like taking six counties, that gives us uh, what, I think a 70-30 split off the top of my head, mm-hmm. and that's more workable. And we can work with that. And the problem is, is that they keep treating it like it's still 70-30 and they can run roughshod over, you know, the minority community. And they haven't set a great precedence because, unfortunately, as you point out, it's majorityism. I mean, it's that's the way it's worked. And unfortunately, you're looking, let's be honest, the next 20 years, 30 years, that's going to flip. I mean, that's just that's the reality. You can you can say we should rejigger the GFA to make it the majority of Northern Ireland, whatever, but it's going to flip. And yeah. so it's unfortunate that there hasn't been a more, call it civic unionism, call it a proactive voice for the union other than keeping them ones down. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the sad reality of it. And it feeds right into, you know, the, the travesty that is the Bolly Murphy massacre, which is it took the British state who doesn't have, any self-declared interest since the Downing Street Declaration, 50 years to state the bleeding obvious. And that's that's a real – I mean, quite frankly, that is a tragedy because it does really reduce the ability to pursue class-based politics. And I think mm. we're all here for that reason. And I think the loyalist community, I mean, direly needs a class-based political party to organize for it. And again, you can say what you want about Sinn Féin. They've organized politically within their community and – that's something that's that's sorely and sadly lacking within the, you know, uh, the PUL community, however you want to articulate that. Mm, yeah. And it's interesting with, say, the experience of the officials and then later SFWP and WP, that by moving beyond the Republican and Nationalist community, they didn't bring it with them in a sense. They couldn't bring it with them, but they couldn't find another area beyond that to build ground and build support. And there is an argument, and I know this from people, who still belong to that tradition, who would say, well, the key thing was to fly the flag and to have the, the flag of working class solidarity and so forth, uh, you know, as the as the central point of 
their political project. But one has to wonder whether in the long term that was a viable option and whether it was one that was a successful option and whether it worked out in the way that one would have, you know, I think everybody would have wanted a degree of working class solidarity, obviously, and cross-communal working class solidarity at that. Swan actually says officials Sinn Féin could attribute their failure to sectarian antagonism caused by the Provisional's campaign. While that did increase sectarian divisions, it does not follow the Protestant working class could have been converted to support a United Socialist Republic had the Provisionals never emerged. The Provisionals deepened sectarian division, but they were a product of it too. And I think that dovetails entirely with what you were saying as well about like the concept of socialism itself converting unionists to republicans always seemed to be a little bit implausible on the face of it, given the, the sparse number of instances in Irish history where unionists and nationalists or republicans have made common cause. Um, but there's another thing as well which is kind of interesting as well, which he addresses, which is the, I think he'd regard it probably as a myth, um, of the creation of the provisionals by Fianna Fáil. And Swan talks in some detail about the fact there were clearly some communications, however official or unofficial those communications were, with the Republican movement from individuals in the state apparatus south of the border. But he makes the point that um, an argument to not use arms in the Republic actually made perfect sense, even above any particular ideological viewpoint with reference to the leftism of the Republican movement. Simply put, no one in Dublin wanted the IRA uh, operating inside the South with arms which had been procured by, shall we say, people within the state apparatus. But this was seen actually from the official viewpoint as being proof positive that it was an ideological drive to do down the officials and to do, drive, do down any prospect of them having any power or authority inside uh, republicanism. What's your feeling on that? No, I, I think honestly, the 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 Workers Party or you know Sinn Fein Workers Party, you know official Sinn Fein, how you articulate that, right? Hmm. They really did excel, and they served a vital function to put the focus on class in the Republic of Ireland at a time in the eighties when it was direly needed. I mean, this is that is critical, and that's a huge point. Now, the rules that were put in place for that obviously came back during Operation Harvest, right? No communists and no yeah. armed activity within, you know, the Republic. The officials did do great. They did great work. And there were a lot of really intelligent people putting in good work in the South. Again, it's it's just like the the derailment of the new departure. Like had the North not broken out, what could have happened? Nobody, nobody knows. Mm. But it is it's it's infantile to act like it didn't happen, right? And then to spend the next 30, 40, 50 years trying to rewrite what could have been. Like, look, if things had worked out differently, I'd be six foot tall and would have abs. It would be awesome, but it's not going to happen. And now I'm 39 and I'm five foot nine and a half. So it's it's just not going to happen. You got to deal with the realities of where you're at. And that's what you should do. And that's, again, one of the great tragedies of the official Republican movement mm. is that they refuse to acknowledge realities and and move on. And they spent way too much time just demonizing people and but again the north for the officials was always going to be um very rocky territory i mean yeah yeah. 
And this is this is the shame of this whole inability because this book obviously could have. I mean, you could literally talk for an hour on chapter two, just Mm. on 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 context and that. I mean, and there's so many things, right? I mean, Harris in the last week getting dumped for trolling on Twitter, Uh, Brexit protocol. I mean, quite frankly, unionism and modern unionism and the working class context of that. I mean, for for fuck's sake, unionism has lost in the month of their centenary has lost both of their unionist leaders. I mean, to lose one and to misquote Oscar Wilde with apologies to lose one is misfortune to lose two smacks of carelessness. It's, it's ridiculous. And they're not, they're, they're not going anywhere with that. And that's like the real shame of it. But there's so many things, even the collapse of the murder trial of Joe McCann is interesting. Mm. And it ties back into so many things. And I mean, is literally the poster boy, the cover of, of this book is the picture of Joe McCann at the bakery from the United States? You Irishman know, from yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, that's the it, that's something that to me is is keeps this book relevant. There's so many things that just kind of keep popping up on it. Yeah, I was gonna make, I was gonna quote I was gonna quote him um, about a point which I think is quite a provocative point, but I think it's one that's well worth thinking about. And he says that. Um, and this was at the time, uh, he said, the provisional, you know, Sinn Féin was currently the largest nationalist party in Northern Ireland. And I remember this was in 2007, 2008, that this was written. He said they have little in common with the original provisional Sinn Féin of 1969 or 1970, being far closer to the position of the officials circa 1973. However, they differ in two significant aspects. Firstly, their socialism is secondary to their nationalism. Secondly, they are more sectarian or realistic, depending on one's point of view in that they appear, there appears to be little serious faith in reaching the Protestant working class. Sinn Féin accepted a restoration of Stormont based on sectarian designation. This amounted to a virtual tacit acceptance of the two nations uh, theory. I think maybe that's like the older states. But, and the abandonment of much common name republicanism. It would have been anathema to the officials in, early, in the early 1970s. What, what's your read on that? I, I think he's right, but I also think, thankfully people can grow like i would certainly hope that the provisional ira with all its military capability grew over 30 years of conflict and realized the futility of it i mean uh, it's been pointed out before by other much more intelligent people than me i mean namely brian hanley on some previous podcasts is the provisional ira had more military capability than it did political clout and Mm. I mean, on, on one level, if you take a very narrow mindset, kudos to them for blowing out the heart of London. But at the same time, what does it accomplish you, right? Yeah. So, and you also had 30 years of uninterrupted armed conflict that, again, put anything else previously on the island of Ireland to shame, mm-hmm. right? I mean, even the War of Independence, you had what, 1916 and let's say 1922. But you cannot compare that to 30 years of armed conflict. You got three generations of of people fighting this fight but again in that 30 years how many things changed right i mean the the collapse of stormont the classic orange state collapsed right and and the idea of the tory ulster unionist alliance coming to not and and really falling apart because it became an issue and you know the labor government and power and all that stuff and the program of stormont but also you know the downing street declarations the aia the hunger strikes and and, and the culmination of the good friday agreement uh and I mean, maybe the, the point is, is the political voice of the northern nationalist population finally finding a voice. And that's that's a lot of territory to cover. But you're exactly right. But I'm so grateful that uh, context and things can change and people can grow. 
Because I think, quite frankly, Northern Ireland, for all its problems, is better off than when uh, people were shooting each other and, and bombs were going off. Yeah, yeah. It is It is definitely true, I think, that a lot of lessons were learned from the official experience. And, and not necessarily the sort of stuff that people think of, but just how do you, or, how do you keep an organisation together? What do you do in terms of fending off the pressures from external and internal actors and so forth? Are the provisionals of the... 2000s and 2010s and 2020s really like the officials of 73 I don't know I, I think there's a sort of an interesting counterfactual that had the Republican movement not split had certain people stayed on board maybe again O'Brody and McStiffon and people like that had stayed on board if it had gone in a slightly softer direction in terms of its leftism maybe but it's very hard to say I mean I think I think his point about you know the socialism of the provisionals was secondary to the nationalism or the republicanism. I think that's. I think maybe that's the key thing. It's where does it? Where does one thing stand in reference to the other? What's what's the key element of the project? And the key element of the project today, obviously for Sinn Fein, is United Ireland, uh, whatever form that actually takes. And I say I was. I, I think it's fair to say that the key element for the officials was socialism of one form or another. They weren't quite sure what form of socialism was going to be. It's it's very entertaining to see, for instance, how. And it's in the, the left archive. Jerry Foley, famously Trotskyist, as late as the 72, 73, still sending back missives from Ireland about the officials and still seeing revolutionary potential inside them, which speaks of a slightly different organisation, perhaps, than the retrospective perception from 10, 20, 30 years later. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I think it's 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 a sad state of affairs that the officials were right about so much and then ended up kowtowing for North Korea and the worst elements of the Soviet Union when they could have pushed for so much more. But it's the weakest part of Swan's book, right, is when he gets to the end and he kind of says, well, here's what I think should be done, right? The, the mm. future. We, we're all, we all do it at some point and it's, it's a shame, but it's also by far the weakest part of his book because none of us control history. It's, it's a cruise ship of which we're not at the wheel. Mm. We're just kind of mm. trying to deal with that. It's also a deep shame that that something of that pedigree that had so much hope and potential ended like that, mm. quite frankly. That, mm. That's how I would view it. Yeah. By the way, it's interesting what you say. It's interesting what you say about like the last part of his book, because he makes an overt appeal for joint authority between London and Dublin, uh, but retaining the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement. So presumably you'd have the you know, Stormont would still exist. But in other matters, it would be matters outside of um, Stormont's authority. It would be between London and Dublin working jointly to determine how things went. It sort of feels a little bit beside the point at this stage, doesn't it? I mean, in a world of Brexit and Scottish independence looming much larger than it ever has and potentially support for Border Pole, if not this decade then next decade or the decade after you know it feels as if it's not necessarily the way things are going to go but in fairness it was written in 2007 it wasn't written in 2021 no i mean but i mean and that's again like is full kudos to professor swan because it's still relevant so many things they say Mm. and that that's what's so interesting is that this conversation is happening at a time that 
so many you know modern developments that you're going to read about on RTE and BBC tie back directly to this book and Swan references them. Mm. I mean, you know, just for me to hell with joint authority. I just want to see a Blaneyite independent Fianna Fail start standing yeah. back in elections in Northern Ireland. Like, come on, people, <laughs> let's 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 get this together. That's or like for lack of for lack of an actual IFF and Donegal, let's draft in the Healy Rays with the flat cap. Let's get them up because I'm I know that there's some love in Fermont and Tyrone for that type of politics. Just throwing <laughs> that out there. Okay. That that's like that, that's as much as you're gonna get me to to future on <laughs> on that. But that's what I think should happen. Right. All right. Um I mean, I guess to sum up, basically we're saying we strongly recommend this book for anybody who's interested in the area. And as you, I think, I think your point at the very beginning is actually a great way to end that this is the companion piece to The Lost Revolution. Anybody who's read The Lost Revolution and who hasn't read this should really read it, shouldn't they? With, without a doubt. I, I really do think they go together very well. And it is quite a shame that, I mean, Lost Revolution was a great work, but it is a shame that it came out so close to this. And this book, in my opinion, did not get nearly the reception that it deserved uh, in favor of the Lost Revolution because they complement each other very well. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it, in a way, how the areas that we haven't touched upon, in a sense, abstention, because abstention, of course, and this is probably us looking back from 2021, Abstention means nothing now. The only abstention that has any functional m- meaning is the reality that Sinn Féin refuses to send its MPs to Westminster, which actually makes sense, I think, from their perspective. And it, in a way, so much of what was some of great import in the late 60s changed. Everything changed so fundamentally by 72, 73. And of course now, 30 40 50 odd years later it's changed again so radically the very the very points of reference have shifted and shifted and shifted again so that the amazing thing about this book and i think it's a testament to its parents what you said earlier the fact that everything keeps coming up though that the same things come up even post-brexit uh the northern Ireland protocol in the context of scottish independence so on and so forth there's just these elements that remain extant and still have this power even if things like abstention is no longer an issue even if the idea of the national liberation front never took hold even if civil rights as was known in the late 1960s doesn't have the power that it had then now it's a completely different scenario but all these things there's still elements and hints and what have you there um do you have any summing up or any thoughts summing up no, I mean, I think we, we, we've covered it. I mean, just thank you guys for, for listening to me ramble. But uh, no, I appreciate it. But no, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, it keeps changing. And it's it's not about kind of the truth writ large, but it's about kind of narratives and where we go. Because you just said everything changes, changes again. I think one of the, the defining moments is the collapse of the Soviet Union, right? Mm. And and how adrift people find themselves or parties or political ideas or ideologies. So no, yeah. I appreciate you guys having me on, uh, you know, listen to short, fat, broke, redneck ramble for two hours. It's, you know, you probably was much. better for me than it was for you, but uh, <laughs> thanks for having me. Thanks very much.